Pflanze freue, oh du mein Heimatland. Hier schwören wir auf Neue, freuen mich Herzen an. Strahlen dort ist du wieder, herrlicher Fanger nach. Jubelt ihr deutschen Brüder, freut man sich euer Wort. talk about. 
I looked up what I could find around the Internet of, of what other white pro-white sites have said about Adolf Hitler uh, today's, uh, on, today's, uh, on his birthday today. I did find that uh, countercurrents had something mentioning it being Hitler's birthday. And um, alternative right, Colin Little, uh, wrote a piece, but it was not about exactly about Hitler, but about how Hitler is viewed in the West, and he compared it to Goldstein in 1984. I guess some people might enjoy that, but I found it. I didn't care for that article very much, but it was it was all right. At least at least he brought it up, and he wrote something pretty good about Hitler not too long ago that I saw uh, somewhere else, not on his site, but can't think of where. But then I, I looked at uh, Daily Stormer, came up with something about Hitler's birthday. And the only pro-white site that didn't have something about it was the Occidental Observer. We know that they don't like to mention Hitler very much so uh, at all, so... That would be the reason for that. But everybody else is pretty much um, recognizes it anyway. However, it's not one of the special years. It was This is the 126th birthday, and last year was the 125th, so that was a little bit more of a, one of those years that you record. So it's not something that everybody's going to make a big deal out of. But here at the Heretics Hour, we kind of make a big deal out of it. So I'm going to have to get started here on my own because uh, I don't see, I just talked to Hattie before the show, but he's not calling in, so he might be having some trouble with his uh, phone connection. Let's hope not. Um, I will continue here. Now, it's no surprise that that Hitler was, was of an artistic temperament. If you, I happened to come across his astrology, his astrology chart, Last night, I saw two of them, and one of them had a very long and detailed analysis of him according to his astrology chart. Well, it turns out he has um, some uh, striking dominance of Sun, Venus, and Mercury in his chart as far as the planets go. Mars' activity is not particularly strong, which tells me that he was not a belligerent man or even aggressive. And we know, if anybody really knows and studies him, you know that he wasn't. And he was not really a natural warlord. But he acted out of uh, love, I would say. That's not the best word, but the, that's what I'm going to use. The Venusian quality and the uh, and intellect. His son is actually, I always thought that he was a uh, Aries, has had a son in Aries. But his turns out, that his son is in the first degree of Taurus. Even though he's born on the 20th, there's a different type of uh, making out charts where things are move around a little bit differently than you might expect in the rigid uh, setting up of them. And it's supposed to be favored. So it makes a whole lot of difference to me that he, it turns out that he is Taurus instead of Aries, which I had always. And this emphasizes along with his very strong Venus and he also has Libra in the Ascendant, which is ruled by Venus. So that really emphasizes his Venusian qualities. I'm going to refer to that a little bit as we go along. Therefore, I was going to say it's no surprise that he was a great designer. 
I have come to the conclusion that one of the great things about Hitler was his constant attention on designing the Reich. You know, and I think of that as kind of like when I, I calling him the grand designer. Well, it's kind of like, uh, that made me think like talking about God, you know. We think of God as the grand designer of the universe, or not, we don't necessarily say designer, but the creator. But he could call it the designer, a, a designer. And that's kind of like the way I uh, see that Adolf Hitler had put his attention on Germany as um, redesigning or keeping the best of it and improving the rest of it and creating something that was uh, going to be much better for all Germans than, than what, what had previously been. And so uh, designing and in that creative sense was what he really loved most and what he really wanted to do. He was in the process of designing this wonderful Reich that, that he could see as a great living space for Germans and having to wage the war that came up, which was not what he wanted, was not in his interest, but and it wasn't what he was best at. He was best at building and creating and designing, but uh, he turned out to be very good at waging war also because he put all of his attention on it and took it very seriously. So he was very good at it, but it wasn't his really chosen path in life, and it wasn't what he was most inclined to, what he was most gifted for. Hitler's economic policies were excellent, and uh, Hitler's social policies were, we can say that they worked, they all worked beautifully. And Hitler's church policies, or his, his uh, relations with the Catholic and uh, Protestant church in Germany, well, he was right about both church leaderships as being against his National Socialist policies and nationalism in general. Here's my phone call. Hello there. Carolyn? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Ray. What I was I was calling just to make sure that nothing was wrong on your end there, and if my phone call went through, then your guest this evening, uh, the problem is on his end. Yes, well, I, I was sure it was. I'm sure it is. Okay. Um, I, now that you're here, um, I'm going to take the opportunity. I'm, I'm glad you called, Ray. It's very nice of you. And uh, let's uh, – why don't you say a few words, if you have any, in uh, about Hitler's birthday today. Well, I go to my Skype and send a message and uh, see what I can find out. Okay, will do. I'll be happy to. Special day. Uh, and for one who has studied so much about Germany, uh, the war years of World War One, World War Two, uh, particularly uh, National Socialism, and all uh, April 20th is a meaningful date, certainly to me. And, uh, you know, the magic that was cast by the Fuhrer and the aura that he had about him uh, still has his enemies shaking in their boots today. They're worried about him, uh, about his memory, uh, and they uh, constantly jump on and attack any references to him. Uh, in a very, very negative way. So that just tells you 
the effect he had on those people uh, back in his time. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, as Carolyn has said already, very much the artist. Uh, there was, I, I bought a book years ago by a fellow named Billy Price, and it was called Adolf Hitler, the Unknown Artist. And if, if any of you have a copy of that book, you will just appreciate certainly his artistic abilities. Uh, and in that, of course, it featured his drawings with uh, like pencil and chalk and some paintings. Uh, and it, it uh, you know, it wasn't really stressing his ability to make uh, designing buildings and like the Reich Chancellery, things like this. But that was also architecture was a uh, one of the things closest to him as well. The man was yeah. an artist, uh, you know, to the nth degree. And the the pictures in that book that Billy Price rounded up all the that he could. All the, the little drawings and things that Hitler had done are astonishingly good. And when I saw those, I thought, you know, how in the world did that, when he applied, uh, it was at Vienna, I guess, for that art school, and they said he didn't have enough talent to belong there. And I saw uh, some of the works that he did, particularly painting uh, or drawing pictures of their, their magnificent cathedrals and uh, churches, things like this, were just my goodness, you would have thought they were a photograph if you look at them. Um, yeah. If you would just uh, continue with me here. And let sure. me make a correction here. What you were just saying that they said he didn't have enough talent, that never was the case. People keep saying that, but, you know, there's so many. Uh -huh. Here's the one thing about Adolf Hitler that uh, we never can get the wrong, uh, the wrong idea. Uh, that, that, yeah, sorry, the misconceptions that people put out. And the misstatements is what I was trying to say that uh -huh. people make. We never can get those cleared up because uh, they just keep coming as people repeat things that they've seen and heard. And, you know, the thing that happened with Hitler in the art school was that when he went, well, when he went to painting art school, they told him that from what, looking at his work that he should go in for architecture. And But when he went to the architecture school, he didn't have the necessary prerequisites to start the school, but I guess you could. I guess it. it they, they said that he was very talented, but they didn't think that that art uh, painting was his best field, and that he should go into architecture. That's basically what it was all about. So it, it confused him, and he uh, and somewhat made him somewhat despondent because he thought he was on a particular path that got blocked for him. And uh, yeah, but. Going on about uh, the other things about him besides uh, the art part of him. Yes, see, I've got a couple of quotes here. I think I'll go into those right away. Um, yeah. He said somewhere in Table Talk, and, you know, we're going to be having a show on Thursday um, to discuss, uh, to sum up all that we, that the impressions that each one of us got from Table Talk and so on and what we think about it. And so a lot of this is going to be covered then, but I wanted to use this here at somewhere in Table Talk, and I, I didn't put down the exact date, and I think that it had to have been in 1941, because that's where I hadn't checked yet. And uh, he made this statement, If I try to gauge my work, I must consider, first of all, that I've contributed in a world that had forgotten the notion to the triumph of the idea of the primacy of race. Secondly, I've given German supremacy a solid cultural foundation. In fact, the power we today enjoy, speaking in 1941,
cannot be justified in my eyes except by the establishment and expansion of a mighty culture. To achieve this must be the law of our existence. So I found that really basic and really important that he says he he considers, first of all, that his his contribution is to the triumph of the idea of the primacy of race. So he puts that first, you know. And right. um, and that is something that that we have to take seriously because he's saying it himself that if he was going to gauge his own work and he was going to say what he thought was what he was most important about what he does he has done he would make it that that the mm-hmm. idea of the primacy of race and then mm-hmm. he says secondly that he's given uh, German uh, supremacy. And he and he says it as a German supremacy, a solid cultural foundation, saying that you that we wouldn't be justified in feeling that uh, we had any superiority in order to expand ourselves, you know, and and uh, grow our nation, into expand our territory, unless we had a mighty culture to bring, with it. you know, that you couldn't be some brutes or some barbarians and take over and, you know, attack and uh, conquer and overcome other peoples if you were if you had nothing to bring to them. But he's saying that they did and that that was, uh, that justified it and that had to be something that they had to make a law for themselves that they had to, that this is what they had to do. That if they were going to be supreme in the world they had to um, have the, uh, a supreme culture to to go along with it. So what do you think of that? Well, you know, it takes me back to the very situation from which uh, Hitler arose as a politician, if you will, as, as a statesman, uh, and the situation in his country at that time was uh, just about as bad as it gets. Uh, economically, you know, after World War One, the nation had been beaten, uh, they had their faces rubbed in it at Versailles, uh, had to assume blame for World War I, uh, been uh, assigned reparations that were beyond anything they could meet. Uh, and the German people in those next few years were had very little to look forward to. Uh, their na- nation was really a, a hotbed of communist revolution. Uh, and and uh, Hitler stepped into that. And he had the chore of putting pride back in those people as a people. And I think his stressing the fact that uh, he stressed the primacy of race, what that did for his people was to make them maybe, if they had been suffering the depression from the, from the defeat of World War One and all the negative that was going on in, in the Germany at that time, it gave them something to think about and you know and maybe have second thoughts and say hey you know we're not we're not these uh, beaten people uh, we're not the evil people they're talking about us and uh, Hitler stepped into that void and uplifted them and, and, and their spirits and that's why he swamped the other parties eventually at the polls in the votes and, yeah uh, of course, hey Hitler, Ray we've Hitler, got to I don't. I hate to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but we've got another caller nope. here, and I want to Good. see if it's Hatting. Good. Hope so. Yeah. 
Hattie, is that you? Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, you were making a little bit of noise. I wanted you to know that I knew you were there. So, uh, yeah. You know, you're not supposed to put me on until I hit one. <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're going to scare up on the people board now. from calling to listen, yeah. you know, because they'll think they're going to yeah. be put on the air. Carolyn, what are you talking yeah. What he's, call, right, right, what he's talking about there is the same thing that happened to me. Uh, when you call in on that number and you, I, we, we hear you talking, we're supposed to hit one before we access the host mode. And and so I didn't have to, and that's why when you talked to me and said, hey, you know, I said, hey, can you hear me? You said, yes. Hey, I didn't hit the one, and that's what he's saying. He didn't have to hit the one either, and you already knew he was there. Yeah, yeah so just, here. they'll just drag people out of the audience and bring them on the stage, whether they want to or not. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not doing that because you're showing up here as a caller without uh, hitting one. So yeah, uh, I don't know where that one thing is. What? I, I was going to. Yeah. But it's already there. Well, listen, I'll you're let you two late, go man. right on with you. you I'll, I'll let you to, go with your Well, <laughs> your, 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 well, you can stay on, Ray, or you can go now and and call come call in again later on. <laughs> well, I'll be listening. Okay, thanks a lot, Ray. You're uh -huh. a buddy. Bye bye. Good bye -bye. luck. Now, Hattie, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, um, yeah, I was uh, researching some things. I was, I didn't get as much research as I hoped I would, but you wait, you wait, and you. Even though you say you're going to call in at the beginning of the show, you wait until later because you're doing some more research and leave me floundering here? No, I, I didn't wait at all. I was uh, struggling my computer. But uh, anyway, okay. yeah. Um, so now here we are with uh, Carolyn Yeager and Hattie Scott on our Hitler's birthday show. I made a few introductory remarks. Oh, you're welcome to make some remarks now yourself. Well, you know, I was doing some research trying to find um, what Adolf Hitler had to say on the question of truthfulness. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there was this article that uh, just got published on the Occidental Observer a few days ago that uh, is actually opposed to truthfulness. And uh, articles like this appear from time to time and I encounter some people from time to time who think that way, and it's all it always disturbs me. Yeah, I know um, it disturbs you, Hanning, but I don't think that the article was really against truthfulness. But it, like so many other articles that have come along, it does say, well, well call, you know, the Jews lie, and uh, and they they winning they're winning by lying. Maybe we should do some lying ourselves, or they they talk kind of like that, you know. Yes, but it, it it really does explicitly say what I just said, and um, okay. so you know, um, I was I was interested in finding out what the the chief had to say about, about it, and uh, you know, it, I, I'm not sure if he explicitly addresses the question of truthfulness anywhere in Mein Kampf, but you can tell that he certainly is concerned with the truth himself because he talks about how uh, various entities 
came to a bad end because they were not dealing with reality. Um, you know, the, the Germans of Austria, the Austrian Germans, uh, made a bad move in 1848 when they supported universal suffrage because that, that caused Austria to cease to be a German state. And yeah, what does that mean? Uh, sorry, Hattie, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, he talked about this in Table Talk not too long ago. We were reading this, and I wasn't clear. He was talking about having all the uh, – it, it wasn't about females vote. It was That's not what it was. It was about uh, all the Austrians being able to vote. Um, meaning all the non-Germans and so on in Austria, which were quite numerous. Isn't that right? Is that what he meant there? Is that what is meant by that, yeah. I mean? Yeah, because only, only about one-fifth of the population of Austria-Hungary was ethnic German. Right. But they were the they were the group that pretty much made that country work. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they, they had united all under other nationalities under their leadership, pretty much. But uh, it, it, it went from being a German state with a lot of subject uh, ethnicities to being a multi-ethnic state after 1848 because of liberal ideas, right? So the, mm -hmm. the Austrian Germans made a bad move there, according to Hitler, and this really was what led eventually to the dissolution of Austria, but also the Habsburg mm -hmm. monarchs made mistakes, um, you know, like, for example, the uh, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, who was married to a Czech woman, was trying to force the Germans to assimilate as Czechs, and they rebelled against that, and this, this is what caused the origin of the Pan-German Party in Austria. Mm-hmm. It caused, it caused German people to hate the Habsburg monarchy, including Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think I should, uh, since you weren't here, uh, this is uh, this is my most important quote for this program today, uh, tonight. That uh, from Hitler, it's from Table Talk, and I think he's, it was in 1941. I failed to put down the date for this one, uh, although I have it for all the others. But I want to read this so that you can hear it. Um, mm -hmm. And then, I wasn't uh, really finished, but okay. I know, but just I'll just stick this in here, and then we'll pick up on that again. Um, if I try to gauge my work, he said, I must consider first of all that I've contributed in a world that had forgotten the notion to the triumph of the idea of the primacy of race. Secondly, I've given Germany supremacy, a solid cultural foundation. In fact, the power we today enjoy cannot be justified, in my eyes, except by the establishment and expansion of a mighty culture. To achieve this must be the law of our existence. Well, then I was explaining all that, but you, you get it. So um, uh, I just thought I'd throw that in there so you knew that I had brought that up in, as you're talking about this situation with uh, truth and the situation in, in Austria. Yeah, well, basically, so, there were, as I recall, there were three problems with the Habsburg monarch that, that he identified. One was the fact that it was a multi-ethnic state, and he said multi-ethnic states are inherently fragile, and they, they require very competent leadership 
and, and strong central government to hold them together. Just, mm -hmm. It has an interesting implication for the United States of America with the way it's going right now. But, you know, a strong shock, if the United States of America gets strong enough shock, it's not going to stay in one piece if it continues the way it's going. But that's one problem, is being a multi-ethnic state. Another problem with Habsburg monarchy was the parliamentarism, because parliamentarism tends to, to reward irresponsibility in politics. There's Nobody's really responsible in a parliamentary system, which is basically what we have, the same thing we have in the United States, not to distinguish you know, from what we have with our Congress and so forth. The same thing, right? That nobody's really responsible for what happens individually. Mm -hmm. It's the majority, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another problem. And majorities really think. It's individuals that ha that have thoughts and ideas. Um, so th uh, there's also there's also this tendency for uh, uh, in a parliamentary system for people to be for the politicians to be dishonest. Um, so those are two of the. Okay, so he said he thought uh, he said this in Mein Kampf. Yeah. Yeah, okay, because he was saying, well, bringing up that business about suffrage being uh, uh, the big mistake that was made in, in uh, the Habsburg Empire, he he was still saying that in, uh, say, 1943 or 42 uh, when yeah. he was discussing things. So uh, that's interesting. That you know, mo Most of what I think we're gonna, we'd find if we did a real serious... Uh, uh, survey of all this that what he said then in the beginning he was still saying later on he didn't change very much <clears throat> right no he did no I don't think he did so the dishonesty uh, he thinks is not as likely in a uh, pure state hmm? in a uh, what would you call well there's it, there's accountability there there's accountability there and I read the same thing yeah in an essay by the British historian Henry Sumner Maine called The Prospects of Popular Government. He wrote a book called Popular Government, I think, and there's a chapter in there called The Prospects of Popular Government where he points out that a dictator is responsible for his decisions, you know. Um, he yeah. bears the weight of, you know, reflects on him and him alone. Uh, but the third thing was wrong with Austria-Hungary was uh, the social conditions from industrialization, uh, what he calls Manchesterism, right? Because Man Manchester in England is supposed to really exemplify this condition in a very bad way, this sort of extreme capitalism where people are, uh, you know, working in factories for low wages and, uh, you know, kind of the poor working man is getting screwed, so to speak, by the, by the rich... Uh, there's an excess of labor, and the government's not doing anything to fix it. And so you have what's called the social problem. And the Christian Democrats were, uh, Christ, excuse me, Christian social movement addressed the social problem. This was uh, by Karl Luther, the, the mayor of Vienna, whom uh, Hitler admired very much. And basically, um, Hitler's politics end up being a synthesis of a uh, 
the racial views of the pan-German movement and the social policies of the Christian social movement. So, uh, yeah, there were all these problems again. in Austria. Christian Say social movement. Yeah. Yeah. National socialism was basically a synthesis of the racial views of the pan-Germanism and social policies of the Christian social movement. Hmm. The pan-German movement was led by Schoener, and the yeah. Christian social movement was led by Karl Luger. Oh, okay. Right, I know he talks about those two a lot. Yeah. The the Christian social movement had a lot more success in terms of uh, getting its policies through because they appealed to all ethnicities, which I, I guess given the given the situation that they had with you know these different ethnicities and Germans being only twenty percent, that was pretty much the only way to. Well, in the in the uh, Habsburg um, multi-ethnic state, um, what before they passed the suffrage, the universal suffrage, were the Czechs were able to vote, right? The Czech uh, part of the nation, and okay, so who was not able to vote there? Uh, So far as I know, everybody. That's that's the problem. Well, what was the suffrage for? I mean, you said that they, when they went to universal suffrage, it ruined the nation. How did it do that if if the, the well, uh, Germans were the bureaucracy? Yeah. It caused Austria to cease to be a German state. Well, how then somebody must have started voting that wasn't voting before. Yeah. That's what right. I don't understand. Yeah, I'm not Go sure ahead. what kind of arrangement they had before 1848. Maybe it was uh, just absolute monarchy and nobody was voting. But uh, they went to a, a parliamentary system. Oh. With, and, uh, yeah. Okay. But, uh, you, know, you know, Hitler uses this word. In German, the title for the first book of Mein Kampf, the subtitle is Eine Abrechnung. And Abrechnung means basically payback. And he uses that word at various places, Mein Kampf, when somebody got something that was coming to them because they weren't dealing with reality. And an example of that is the collapse of the Habsburg monarchy, right? Uh, But um, the German German Empire, uh, you know... uh, the Reich of Kaiser Wilhelm also was not dealing with reality because they had this alliance with the Habsburg monarchy and they were deluded in thinking that uh, this was a, a German state. And it was not. You know, so constantly Hitler is referring to how various people are not dealing with reality and how they're heading for disaster because they're not dealing with reality. Okay, and that's a form of dishonesty. Is that what you're going to say? Well, it it, it shows that he's concerned with facts, <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. Most certainly, but you know, it's also though he's also interested in sincerity because he says you, in order to 
to move an audience, you have to be passionate. And if you're not passionate, if you don't really believe in what you're, you're saying, it's not going to work. You know, and you yeah. have to be able to speak passionately to move audience. And uh, so you've got these two considerations there. You've got the facts that are very important. You have to be dealing with reality. And you have to be sincere. If you, you know, so those are two considerations there. Now, I got another thing here. This is from Goebbels. This is a quote mm-hmm. from uh, uh, Joseph Goebbels describing National Socialism, a paragraph from my blog. Goebbels wrote, National Socialism has now unified the thinking of the German folk for us. Without leading back to primitive archetypes. It has reduced the processes of politico-economic life complicated in themselves to their simplest formula. This results from the natural consideration of how to lead the broad masses of the folk back to political life. In order to find comprehension among the masses of the folk, we deliberately conducted a folk-oriented propaganda. Thus, we have dragged onto the street facts that otherwise were accessible only to a few specialists and experts and hammered them into the brains of the little man. All things were presented so simply that even the most primitive understanding could absorb them. We refused to operate with vague, watered-down, and unclear concepts, but rather stripped bare the meanings of all things. That's, that's Hitler's rhetoric in a nutshell, I think. Uh, basically, y- you have to give the masses facts, but you have to make it very simple and just give them the essential. Mm-hmm. Because Hitler says time, time and again how the masses of people are not able to deal with ambiguity and subtlety. You have to make everything simple and clear. Well, if today we uh, put forth simple, clear facts to the general public, uh, do you think that that's not being done or that would make a difference or it wouldn't, you know, is that uh, we're in a different time now and it wouldn't have the same effect? I mean, how, how would... Doing it, you okay. know, in, like when people find uh, examples of of of, uh, of black crimes that are not reported, right, and publicize them, or uh, more importantly, misrepresentations and cover-ups of anti-white crime, and they draw attention to the fact that this is being covered up. That would be an example of that. And uh, you know, Jared Taylor, in this in a certain sphere, is is doing pretty much what Goebbels describes there, which is you know taking facts that otherwise wouldn't be well known to the public and mm-hmm. presenting them in a simple way, right? Right. But he's not Stays reaching a very home. big public. That's the unfortunate part. You know, if the newspapers were doing this or something, yeah. it would be good. But, you know, we're only reaching a certain audience. Um, they could reach the public. They, the Hitler's government reached the public, and even before they were had the government, while they were uh, still uh, 
striving toward that. They even then they reached the public. A lot of it. They were better at that. Well, they were in a different uh, uh, system. They just had their own country there too. They could speak to their own countrymen. Today in Germany, you can't say anything like that, so that's out. Um, but the fact that Adolf Hitler believed in telling the truth, I think, is important, and it's what he did. And you know, as I was trying to say to uh, Ray, kind of stumbling over my words, um, the uh, there's so many mis uh, misstatements and misinformation that's put out about Hitler and and his associates and so on, things they've said and what they were doing, that constantly get repeated uh, because we're in an internet world. So on the internet, people repeat these things, and uh, if you you correct them, and I know you're big on correcting mistakes when you see them, uh, they just come back again, you know, and you've constantly uh, got so much of this kind of misinformation going on. It's hard to get it straightened out. So how how would you say, how has the Internet affected telling the truth or getting the truth well, out? Well, uh, certainly it's helped a lot because you can put things online and if anybody is searching for a particular piece of information and it's posted somewhere, they might find it, you know, and you can put it, if you put it there in a nice simple and easy to digest form, it might influence a lot of people. It might end up in somebody's research paper. I get hits on my blog from school systems and universities pretty often. And there's Mm -hmm. also the, you know, podcasts, you know, people speaking. Hitler was very big on the spoken word rather than the written word as a way to convince people. He particularly advocated mass meetings where somebody speaks because the the, the personal contact of speaking in front of people is supposed to reach people in a way that the written word never does. But, you know, that was before radio was really big, you know, uh, even radio, you know. But now with Internet, you know, you can do a, a show like this. It's just like a radio show. It's The problem is, only problem is how do you get people to listen to it? That's That's the only thing. But, you know, if you were going to have a public meeting, that would be the same problem. What would you think? What do you think is the most important thing to be said today, on this very day, um, about Hitler on his birthday today, Hattie? Did you just say it? Hmm. The most important thing to say about Hitler. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of what the, you know. I, I mostly end up. Arguing with people who say stupid things like uh, Hitler was evil, and then I have to ask them, well, how do you justify that uh, opinion? And I try to get them to state some facts, or or what they think are facts, so that I can actually have a discussion. Um, But, uh, I mean, the most important thing about Hitler is that uh, they lied about him. Well, that's right, and you know, Hit, uh, what, what's, what's been occurring to me uh, lately is that Hitler 
was uh, so good. He was he was so essentially a good good person, and his intentions and his motives were so good beyond what uh, what anybody else was really. I mean, beyond what most people are are capable of. And he devoted himself to that good, and yet he has been uh, turned into the exact opposite. You know, to this, uh, like you say, this uh, character, car- uh, caricature type comic book evil, uh, evil character. Uh, just the opposite. It's so, it's so uh, strange. Although it's not strange because he was, uh, he's, uh, because of his attitude toward the Jews. That's the one thing. That's probably the, what people point to, right, Hanning? Is what why he's evil is because. He was an anti-Semite. Well, they say, well, he killed millions of people. I noticed the latest fad is to blame Adolf Hitler for every death in the Second World War. Right? It's all Hitler's fault now. Seventy million deaths, they say. All Adolf Hitler's fault. So then I have to go and explain to them that Hitler didn't want the war. And that uh, he, uh, he made a peace offer to Britain and France. After, after the defeat of Poland, and offered to restore a reduced Polish state, and that he, that the Poles had provoked the war. You know, I mean, when, I remember when the Vincent Rivar was on you uh, first time. He uh, he talked about all you know all the how the how the Poles actually had deliberately provoked war, and then uh, and then mm-hmm. the British uh, made a uh, made a peace offer through Mussolini. And said uh, you have to stop your troops, and then and then amazingly Hitler said, "Okay, we'll stop our troops." And right. then they, they upped the ante and said, "Well, you've got to withdraw before we negotiate." But he wasn't going to do that because nobody ever set a condition like that for negotiation. But uh, so they deliberately provoked the Second World. This is something that more people should know. But you know, the most important thing is that they've lied about him, and to convince people that there was. Lying about Adolf Hitler, you can contemporary references like Saddam Hussein, right? A lot of people understand there was some lying about Saddam Hussein. They understand that there were no weapons of mass destruction, and basically we invaded that country for nothing. They may not know all of the lying that was done about Saddam Hussein, but that's easy enough to uh, demonstrate. If they would just look, you know, if they would act and actually discuss it. You know, the whole gas curds story was, was mm-hmm. fiction. But, uh, you know, you got to get people to discuss these things where you can even tell them that and try to show them what the, what the evidence is. But every, basically every time, every time there's a decision to, uh, or the, let's say every time the Jews <laughs> want us to uh, overthrow some government, to destroy some leader, they always compare him to Adolf Hitler. Every time. Right? The the most the newest Adolf Hitler of course is uh, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin lately has become Adolf Hitler. Um and before that it was Bashar al Assad and, and uh, I don't I'm not sure if Gaddafi got compared I suppose he did. And uh Ahmadinejad used to be Hitler but he he's not in office anymore so that's down the memory hole. And uh Saddam Hussein definitely. Uh, I remember reading the uh, article from 
the editorial uh, opinion piece by Louis Sapphire in the New Times from 1st of September 1988. He said that uh, Saddam Hussein gassed the Kurds with cyanide, the same gas used at Auschwitz. Right. Mm -hmm. So you you can't get much more explicit than that as far as uh, comparing these. You know who was uh, Adolf Hitler? Uh, Manuel Noriega. He was another Adolf Hitler. But none of these people are are as bad, I and mean, they don't treat any of these people the way they've treated the actual Hitler and and uh, the German people in that whole period of time. Listen. Um, I well, the Iraqis uh, went through hell, but, uh, you know. Yeah, oh, you're right, the Iraqis. And, you know, I when you were talking about that, I mean, I can remember so clearly that when they were doing that thing on uh, Saddam Hussein and I was believing it, and I was, uh, I believe this thing, they when the, the, final, uh, the final one for me was when they, I read about his two sons who would go out into, uh, you know, into the, into the capital there or whatever, and, uh, and pick up people who they didn't like, and have them arrested and t taken into prison and torture them and so on. Uh, and they just did that without any judicial anything or you know nothing stopped them, and they were just torturing people down there in this torture chamber they had. I said, well, that's just terrible, you know. And then when the you know. Bush was saying we got to invade these people. I finally was saying, yes, we better do that because we can get rid of these, this Hussein family and then, then it can all go back. Not having any idea what they had in mind to do, you know, to change the world forever, uh, which that whole thing has done. But, um, boy, it's um, uh, how, how easily you can fall for this stuff. And, you know, I can make fun of people who believe in things today, but it wasn't all that long ago that uh, I, I fell for it just like that. And that's what's so scary. You can't, be, it, to break through that, it takes, but it does take the internet, so you have to, we have to be grateful for the internet, you know. I mean, I know the internet is, is uh, the reason for all of, all of this expose, exposure that's been going on. It wouldn't, and people waking up, they wouldn't be I wouldn't have woken up without the internet. Um, well, you know, I wanted to uh, along these lines here. I just brought up a page that I've been. Uh, I was reading uh, Nick Collistrom's book on uh, Holocaust revisionism, breaking the spell, and he came. Uh, he had quite a number of things that the Jews had come out with against Hitler right from 1933 on. Uh, that I was unaware of. And, uh, of course, the one, Judea declares war on Germany, Jews of all the world united, boycott of German goods and so on in the Daily Express. Um, I was aware of that, of course. And he calls it a, the beginning of a massive economic assault upon the National Socialist German state, despite which it still prospered. And then it was uh, Emil Ludwig Kohn. I've heard this one, too, where Hitler said in June 1934, Hitler will have no war, does not want war. It means, you know, Hitler will have no war, but we will force it on him, not this year, but soon. And he was, uh, who was he? He was an important person. 
in this uh, someone uh, a historian said that this declaration called for the war against Germany which was now determined on a determined on a holy war a holy war they called it too to be carried out against Germany and to its conclusion to her destruction that's a quote um, I guess from this Emil Ludwig Kohn and then um, let's see where is this from um, Vladimir Jabotinsky founder of the Ergun said in uh, 1934 January for months now the struggle against Germany is waged by each Jewish community at each conference in all our syndicates and by each Jew all over the world there is reason to believe that our part in this struggle has general value we will trigger a spiritual and material war of all the world against Germany's ambitions to become once again a great nation to recover lost territories and colonies but our Jewish interests demand the complete destruction of Germany collectively and individually the German nation is a threat to us Jews now that was a Zionist saying that and a very important one of course it's coming from down there in Israel land but um, you know this was the way they were talking and thinking as as a worldwide organization and then David A. Brown, national chairman of the United Jewish Campaign in 1934, said, we Jews are going to bring a war on Germany. And uh, Heim Weizmann said in 1939, um, I knew about this one, the Israeli people around the world declare economic and financial war against Germany, holy war against Hitler's people. Now, even though it was 1939, September 5th, or this was yeah September 5th and um, and of course he was uh, going right going right along with uh, Britain and France and mostly Britain you know because they had declared war on September 3rd but you know he again they're calling it economic and financial war um, and a holy war against Germany and and Hitler's people and, and then we have um, something in a French uh, newspaper I guess uh, Jews saying even if we Jews are not bodily with you in the trenches we are nevertheless morally with you this is our war in quotes in uh, capitals and you are fighting it for us this is February 19th we'll be, we'll be right behind you yeah you know this is our war and you are fighting it for us they had the gall and the nerve to say things like that and uh, here this guy uh, Maurice Paris-Zweig of the World Jewish Congress in Toronto is saying uh, to Canadians regular Canadians the World Jewish Congress has been at war with Germany for seven years this was in February 1940 so he's talking about since 1933 you know and uh, and Nick Kolostrom was saying by this that he was using this to say that there was nothing uh, wrong with Germany putting uh, trying to get rid of Jews and putting Jews in concentration camps he said all countries do that when you have a, an enemy within like that during time of war and uh, so that's what um, that was some of this um, amazing stuff that these that they were saying against Germany 
all this time. Yeah, well, you know, there's so many people that are disillusioned now, especially since September 11th, 2001, and and realize that the government and mass media lie to them a lot. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be too hard at this point to set the record straight on Hitler, at least with a lot of people. And that's what I find. I find especially people on the left, you know, you can, you can, unless you're, you know, like commit Marxists or something, it's very often possible to, to reason with people if, if you actually have some facts that you can show. You know, a lot of people just don't have any facts. <laughs> yeah, and you have to say, uh, I get kind of angry and, uh, you know, I kind of go after people probably, but you have to stay calm and you do have to have these facts on your on your side. Well, um, I, if you, I want to let you say whatever you want to say about this, and then I've got a couple of questions here that I had saw right before the show <coughs> in my email <coughs> from um, Marshall Krieg, and he had uh, four of them, and two of them fit our program tonight. So I'll bring those up. Unless you, but if you want to say some more about the truthful issue, truth issue. Go ahead. Well, as far as truthfulness, well. I- there's this interesting thing here. This is a quote from Conrad Kellen of the Rand Corporation. Mm-hmm. He wrote this in the introduction to Jacques Du's book, Propaganda, from 1965. Quote, even Goebbels always insisted that the Wehrmacht's communiques be as accurate as possible. Close quote. And Conrad Kellen, that's not his birth name. He was some had some Jewish name, but... Uh, uh, Rand Corporation, that's like a major think tank. So, basically saying that the war news, Goebbels insisted that the war news be as accurate as possible. Well, that's right. That's right. He did, you know. And they, they always, they're always trying to put things out the way they really were. They used, naturally, when something comes up that you can use in your favor, propaganda-wise, you do it. But they didn't go so far as to lie and and, uh, and make things up. Well, I want to give one more um, quote from Hitler here uh, before we go before I go on to these uh, comments from this emailer, um, and that is um, he also said in Table Talk, January 26, 1942, and he said this other on other occasions too, but uh, not so often though. But he said, if somebody else had one day been found. To accomplish the work to which I've devoted myself, I would never have entered on the path of politics. I'd have chosen the arts or philosophy. The care I feel for the existence of the German people compelled me to this activity. It's only when the conditions for living are assured that culture can blossom. Well, I thought that was really excellent, and I believe he's sincere about that. You brought up sincerity. He's sincere about that, absolutely. Um, he wanted to he, he was he wanted to devote himself to the arts and cultural things and he was also interested in philosophy and all these you know higher level matters and thoughts but in 1918 at the end of that uh, the the, uh, the defeat of Germany in in the Great War was uh, devastating to him 
And that's what turned him to saying that the German, he was afraid the German people, the German nation, would, were on the verge of destruction, you know, from what, was being, what had been done to them, that they wouldn't recover. And that he, he wanted uh, to, to devote, he wanted to do whatever needed to be done, and he found that nobody would do it. Nobody else was going to do it, you know. And this is what he said many times, too. That if somebody else would do what I'm doing, I'd be happy to turn it over to them. Uh, but uh, there, there isn't, and there wasn't. And so he got started, and he found all along the line that nobody but him was willing to put in what was necessary. And I mean, he put in, uh, he worked. My God, that was a lot of work. And he was, uh, he, he, he was uh, on the go and dealing with people constantly, all the time, making speeches, traveling around. And, you know, uh, I, I sent you that, uh, or you saw that uh, horoscope of his. You know, it shows that his he's active in the, uh, on, on the side of his chart that it deals with the world and other people. And he's, uh, his most active house is the seventh house, which is the house of relationships and dealing with other people. And that's exactly, you know, he was never alone after that much, you know. He, uh, only when he could go at nighttime, you know, before bed, he'd go off to his room and he could be alone and read and look at his books and stuff. But otherwise, he was always with people. I don't, you know, that was, that to me is very, uh, um, uh, draining, you know. Um, he was always, people, he, he never... He didn't really even hardly have privacy, you know. I mean, he was he was uh, involved in all this stuff constantly. So I thought that uh, that again says that he he wasn't trying to be some big deal. He wasn't trying to be a famous or a god or a great man or something. He was doing it because he thought it needed to be done, and he had made this very strong inner conviction that this had to be done for the German people and German nation. He loved the German nation that much. Uh, he cared about it that much that he devoted himself to it. And and never and he was worried about his successor and uh, and you know, he was he was looking and he set up all these programs in the party they did to train people. That's partly what the SS uh, became and, and all the schools and so on, to train leaders so that they could carry on uh, after him, you know. He didn't want to be the, the last great German, that's for sure. So do you have any comment on that? Well, I think there were a couple of other people that would have liked to have been the Fuhrer. I mean, there were the Sasser brothers and there was the Ernst Röhm, but whether they would have been confident to do it is another question. Well, yeah, that was early on. Yeah, that was early on. And, you know, at that time, he was full of energy and vigor and probably wasn't so willing to turn it over or didn't think that they were uh, competent. They, they were much, uh, they were more leftist than he was. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it would have, probably would have caused problems with the Army. <clears throat> well, right. That was a huge uh, um the break, not not a break, but that was a, a big, uh, well, the Army didn't like the SA, and the SA didn't like the Army, so he went with the Army. It was the, it was the German Army, you know. It had been around for a long time. Uh, he didn't see the wisdom. Do you think that could have ever worked, to have the 
to have uh, turned the uh, Rome's essay into the whole into the army for Germany? You know, I haven't really studied very much. I I think that uh, I mean from what I, from the little that I've read about it, it it seemed like what was going on with the essay during the first year of Hitler's rule, first year and a half of Hitler's rule, it was kind of disgraceful. And that's part of why the army said uh, to Hitler that he needs to uh, do something about it. Mm -hmm. Because they were going around, you know, beating people up, supposedly, and uh, they were running their own prisons and stuff like this. And... Uh, Making Germany look bad. Yeah, yeah, it would. Oh, they were they were not uh, they, they didn't have the experience. They were not uh, hadn't been professional. They hadn't existed for long enough. They didn't have the tradition, you know. So it was uh, they they were just new and kind of uh, rednecks or something in a way, you know, here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here is um, here's the the question from Marshall Krieg. He says, uh, "Well, it's not a question, but uh, Hitler's leadership style." It's about this. I think some historians claim that Hitler's government was disorganized, and Hitler himself was lackadaisical. Well, I know I've read all that too. Uh, the term for this is working toward the Fuhrer. I don't know. I've never heard that term. I don't know if you have. Uh, he had overlapping departments, rarely issued direct orders, etc. This is the claim. So he wanted me to talk about that. Um. I don't know. David Irving says that Hitler was a weak uh, domestic ruler, and uh, but a great warlord. That's what David Irving says. Well, I think he was a great domestic leader, but he did have uh, the what they call the bohemian artist habits of uh, of staying up late at night and sleeping late in the morning. Um, and then this, but this thing about uh, he didn't issue orders. Well, you know, he talked himself about this enough in that he didn't want to give orders to people of a certain level, and he certainly didn't give the orders to people uh, on lower levels that their commanders and, and superiors would do that. But he but um, but he did issue general orders and he did make uh, rules and laws and so on that everybody was supposed to follow. But in, it seems to me that in the, uh, the way the Fuhrer Princep works is that he's at the top and then he's got people right under him and then they've got people under them and they've got people under them and so the orders go down and sometimes uh, uh, maybe these people weren't doing I, 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 don't, I didn't hear I've never read too much complaint about that though um, people seem to want him to be a Stalin or to be some kind of a they complain about Hitler being a dictator and then they say he wasn't uh, dictatorial enough um, he did, though, want well, people I, to, 
to do things because they felt they knew he wanted to he wanted to bring this German leadership around uh, the, to develop it that they they knew what needed to be done or they understood what needed to be done put it that way and then they did it that they didn't have to have an order for everything and he was against the idea that uh, so many of them didn't want to take any responsibility and that's why they wanted to have an order from him for everything they did. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, that, that's the basic idea is you pick competent people that you trust and give them uh, the authority to make decisions, and you don't have to decide everything for them. But, you know, people did violate his uh, orders. Uh, you know, I mean, some of the generals did from time to time. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the war, uh, you know, Himmler was negotiating behind Hitler's back and, you know, Goering also. So. Well, you want to talk about that? I don't mind. I've uh, thought about it. I don't that. know a lot about it. I just well, I thought all about I it recently. And, uh, you know, that last uh, Hitler speech that Showblocker translated and uh, I published on my site. And I, I uh, read that pretty carefully and I wrote some commentary on it. But I get the feeling from that best I can say is I get the feeling that Himmler was uh, was devoted to Hitler, but at the end, Hitler was uh, showing that he had run out of, well, there was nothing he could do, you know, I was going to say he had run out of ideas, but that's a, that's a way of saying it, though, that, yeah, what what do we do now? I don't, I don't know, you know, he finally decided to shoot himself, uh, because there was nothing more that could be done. Well, somewhere in there, uh, it was really close to the end that Himmler, I think, just took it upon himself, thinking that um, he had, well, he had been given more and more authority. This is the way I was thinking about it. Himmler had been, been given more and more responsibilities by Hitler, and now he was in charge of, uh, you know, some armies and, or at least some troops and so on, and he had a lot of, uh, he, you know, he could, he could, he could show the, um, Whoever he was talking to, the British, or the just the Allies, that um, that he could negotiate for um, for Germany, and he he may have thought. I think it's most likely that he thought uh, he needed to take some initiative in order to try to help Germany. But he was so naive to think that they would negotiate with him, or uh, or at that point do anything for Germany, make any kind of a deal. But he may have thought that he he had uh, the authority over so many troops now, plus all his SS, that that was a kind of a bargaining chip that would work for saying, uh, help us to uh, continue fighting the Soviet Union, you know. And uh, he thought that maybe he had a way of saying it that maybe hadn't been said, I don't know. But all that had already been done, you know and had been rejected by the Allies. So he didn't stand a chance, but I, I can only think that he thought he was doing something that uh, that needed to be done, that Hitler no longer had control of the situation. And I think that's what Goring... Goring got the, got the impression from some kind of a, a message that he got or whatever was happening that uh, that he was given some kind of authority, which he wasn't, and he yeah. was, he tried to use it, 
but uh, and then Hitler just blew his top at both of them. I think uh, maybe overly much, you know. I mean, he called them traitors and so on, and I don't think he's I because you know you don't I, I certainly don't know what really was going on there. All I know is things I've read and so on. So, but I I don't think that these men should have been either one of them should they should have been talked to. You know, I don't know. Couldn't have talked to. Hitler by then, I don't know where he was. He was dealing with someone in Sweden. Um, but you know, at a time like that, when when the when the the worst end is coming upon you, people do things that in in probably in um, what you call uh, desperation, trying yeah. trying to do something. A lot of a lot of uh, the National Socialists thought Hitler should have gone down to Bavaria. They wanted him to go south. They wanted him to get out of Berlin, but he wouldn't do it. Uh, I think he knew what he wanted, what he should do for himself. I don't think that would have been an answer for him at all. Then he's what? He's going to be on the run or something? That would never work. Yeah. So he did the right thing, but I think he was a little bit too hard on uh, on these men. But at the same time, he did name a government in his last will and testament and it was a good one you know and they they functioned uh well goebbels was supposed to be the new chancellor wasn't he yes he was and he you know i read in one of those uh secretaries uh, or one of the uh, his uh aides one of them one of those books uh of the those who were down there in the bunker to the end that uh oh it was a troutel i guess uh, the, the secretary who typed up all this stuff, and she uh, said that while she was typing Hitler's last testament and so on, Google came into the into her uh, little room there, and he was like in tears almost, and he was so upset, and he was saying that uh, the Fuhrer wants him, is insisting that he stay and become the chancellor, and he just can't. He wants to com- he wants to commit suicide along with the. Uh, Along with him, and and he can't he can't accept it, and he was all upset because he said he he had never denied anything the Fuhrer asked of him, um, but yeah. he didn't do it, and he did, uh, and you know of course his wife and Magda they had a plan together what they were going to do, and uh, he didn't want to go on either in that in that horrible situation. Um, well, to me, the uh, the decision of Adolf Hitler to uh, die in Berlin uh, was uh, it was symbolic. You know, mm-hmm. he was basically affirming that uh, there was no compromising on the question of the unity of Germany, and uh, he was going to take his last stand there. Um, but in a way, it, it reminds me of the death of Socrates, because you know, Socrates, he was condemned to death, and he was supposed to drink the hemlock, but he had every opportunity to escape. People were telling him, you know, you should you should escape to Lemnos or Crete, and he said, oh, what would life be like if I went to those places at my age, and, you know, those people, I wouldn't be happy with them, and stuff like this, and, um, 
Hitler's case, he was in very poor health at the end anyway. Right. He right. had he had a heart condition that was being treated with nitroglycerin and he had Parkinson's disease. And uh, yes, you something. Know, I don't know if it was Parkinson's disease, but it seems like it was. Yes, it was Parkinson's yeah. disease. Okay. And all the stress had just, you know, that was just the it just brought all that on so much worse than it might have been otherwise. Yeah, there was a physician. There was a physician who was present at his last medical examination in April 1945, who said that he had Parkinson's disease. Um. So yeah, he 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 chose to face death uh, in the place where, you know, he. Yeah, well, you Where know, he, he, belong, was so, you know? he, he was so right uh, in doing that, Hatting, because uh, they never found, they never got his body. They say they got his body and, uh, you know, took it to Russia or something. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe that's him. Uh, but they, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, he, he, otherwise they, they would have gotten him. Get, just imagine what kind of a mess that would have been. Huh? You know, what a terrible mess if uh, if he had been captured, for God's sake. Uh, and and his uh, his wife, Ava, was smart enough to know that she should do the same thing. So uh, they they didn't get they, they didn't find themselves in the hands of the uh, of that. Well, we've got another caller here. I guess I'll find out uh, who it is. OK. Hello, hey, caller. Carolyn. Well, Frederick, Carolyn. you're showing up yes. after all. <laughs> yes. So what what I'd like to do is just read from the book Judaism and Music, Wagner for the 21st Century, where I wrote the introduction. This is the Barnes Review book. Um, I my conclusion, and it, it just throws a bit of light on Adolf Hitler's character. And um, I'll, I'll read the lot of the conclusion. It's uh, just a little bit, little. Okay, very uh, good. Not much. This is Frederick Tobin, ladies and gentlemen. Now, a glance to the recent past. Certainly, for German cultural integrity, the works of Richard Wagner strike a chord that fitted well into the National Socialist ideals, which propagated hard work, cleanliness, beauty, and truth. Until the final years of his life, Wagner also affirmed his strong support for the ideal of monogamy, and it is always interesting to see his detractors claim Wagner was a philanderer. But the work done by the post-World War II propaganda machine against Wagner and anything German, which actually has been running full steam since at least 1914, is difficult to influence and only time will correct the distortions that run under the catch cries anti-Semite and racist. I'll, and I'll put in here a comment. Um, if you read the book, Judaism and Music, and Wagner's commentary that really condemned uh, the Jewish mindset, then uh, today's, um, well, what, whatever revisions have experienced today, 
is nothing new. It is the battles between Germanism and Judaism. And let me then conclude. That is why it, is, it was so refreshing when Richard Wagner's daughter-in-law, Winifred Wagner, stated quite clearly in a letter written in 1947, and I quote, I more or less remain faithful until the bitter end, only because I knew this man, Hitler, to be kind, noble, and helpful. It was the man and not the party that held me. End of quote. This upsets the individuals brainwashed by the Allies' war propaganda to this day. But in 1975, the woman still stood courageously firm. And I quote again, I shall never disavow my friendship with Hitler. I cannot do it. I am able, I mean, perhaps no one understands, but I am able completely to separate the Hitler I knew from what he is accused of these days. The part of him I know, so to speak, I treasure as much today as before. If Hitler came in the door today, for example, I would be just as pleased and happy as ever to see him and to have him here. And my concluding paragraph, it is the Wagnerian success at extricating himself from Jewish thought structures that Winifred Wagner clearly understood and valued in Adolf Hitler. It is the same thing which has led me to conclude that Adolf Hitler was one of the greatest freedom fighters of the 20th century. And I read that in November 2014. There we are. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, that's very good. And did, who was the author of that book? You said you wrote, or are you the author of the author? Book? It's, it's it's Wagner's two essays on Judaism and music put oh, together. Okay. Ronald Ray edited it, and I wrote the introduction to it. I get it. And All Andrew right. Gray uh, concluded it because Andrew Gray, um, who uh, translated Wagner's Mein Leben, My Life, uh, is, is the generally accepted uh, uh, translation um, um, of Wagner's autobiography. And he came to our conference, to Adelaide Institute's conference in 1998, and his talk um, we transcribed, and it's, it concludes the, um, the book's uh, content, as well as Mark Twain. He, um, he at the shrine of St. Wagner, he, he attended a, a, um, a performance, I think it was in, in December in 91, 1891 or something like that. But it's a marvelous book. Uh, because what you realize from this is that the battle Wagner fought in the 1870s against Meyerbeer and the Jewish impulses that, uh, that frustrated him, uh, then um, you understand why today people have to decry him. I saw an article in the, the American Thinker. Somebody wrote a stupid thing about how Wagner and Hitler were both romanticists and that's, this is what led to the gassing or the killing of six million Jews. Yeah. So you see, that's the big leap. Yeah. You, you know, all the people who knew Hitler, who really knew him, like you were uh, quoting from uh, Winifred Wagner, uh, they all spoke so well of him. And uh, none yeah. spoke otherwise. The only people who did who say these things are people that had didn't ever know him or don't and are and are enemies to what he represented. 
Oh, that's yeah, and, well, and that's... the worry, my worry is that when now with the 9/11 and other um, um, well insider jobs doing uh, having an effect on the younger generation, they're opening their eyes and they'll say, "Oh, yeah, the media is lying. Everything is is not what it seems to be." They get sucked into this nonsense of being in a matrix and not knowing what's real and what's not. Uh, David Cole comes in with his nonsense of the Cohe report and, and the other thing. Documents are supposed to prove something. They can't. Let's look at the mm -hmm. physical evidence and the revisionist, notable revisionist, um, Gemma Rudolph, Jürgen Graf, Carlo Matonio, Thomas Kuss and so on. They've done this. And, and uh, you don't need a document to prove that something is not possible. And, and, and therefore... Uh, you can see how people are pushing away the younger generation's mindset by confusing them again and again. Right, right. Those documents, they're not all that they're made out to be by these people who are claiming uh, that well, they're you know something. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Harry. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, uh, whom you also know, Carolyn, um, he had an argument. Uh, it was Actually, it was on uh, Charles Kraft's. Facebook page. I don't use Facebook anymore, but uh, a mutual friend uh, contacted me wanting to know how to respond to Kohlenstein on this thing about the Corhair report. Mm -hmm. Cause, uh, uh, Are you uh, talking about something, Hanning, that is just very recent that you found on Yeah, it was this morning. Okay, was this I just morning. got it in an email, and I was kind of surprised, so uh, please go on. Yeah, and so I'm being asked you what to say to David Cole Stein because uh, he was saying that uh, in the Cole or Hale report, Jews who are uh, ev evacuated are counted as abgang in this report. In other words, um, they're. In, in other words, Jews that are evacuated from, from wherever they happen to live and put into camps are counted as, the way Cole translated, departed. Yeah. Abgang yeah. is exactly departed. It's departure. Um, so the, the, the answer to the, the problem is that the, the Jews had not disappeared from Europe. They were counted as departure because they were expected to leave. Well, we're, get, we're getting an echo. We're getting an echo from you, Hatting, uh, and I've got a question mark on on uh, Frederick's call. Are you there, Frederick? Yes. Okay. Well, I just want to know if so, that something you were doing had something to do with the the. Uh, no, I'm, I'm doing nothing. I'm I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Yeah. I well, do I'm nothing. Well, go, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Hatting. And so we'll anyway, the, the, the answer to the answer to David Cole's uh, uh, interpretation of the Corhair report is that the reason why those Jews were counted as leaving Europe is that they were not expected to stay in Europe. The camps were a, a, a stopping point on their way out. Right. That's as simple as that. And it's so clear. You know, it's getting it's getting more clear all the time, and yet they're 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 really trying hard to pull this. This idea together that this that these Jews were killed um, in uh, in these Reinhardt camps. 
which is uh, yeah. and Carolyn, what? Yeah, Carolyn, let me just interrupt. Um, Robert Forreston did all the studies for this, and Cole is pretending that what he's doing is something new, and he's the one who's discovered these things. This is all nonsense. This is what I've noticed what they're doing now with the, with the Holocaust narrative. They're putting Jewish people into the position who will then ultimately claim that they have broken or they have propagated or fought against the lies, and they are now telling the truth. Now, this is what's happening, and it's a great deception. Forrest, uh, Cole, in his uh, um, autobiography, he buckets uh, Forreston, he buckets Zundel, he buckets oh, Leuchter. And I, I don't and, and you know all that... I don't, I don't understand why Charles, Charlie Kraft is, seems to be supporting this right now unless i i wrote and i asked them maybe i was misunderstanding what yeah. he was saying there um, uh, this is where see, see, this is the problem with forest and the the older ones they're sort of fading away and then these younger ones they haven't quite heard these things this is why in the 90s most of the matter was discussed and discovered by these solid revisionists, even even Arthur Butts' book is still current after, yeah. what, 30 odd years. And, okay. and therefore, it's nothing new. We've won the argument on paper. That's the important thing. Okay. Let's, let's not but, get caught up in the Holocaust here. Um, right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, because we can always do that on another time. But there are a lot of... Uh, they're not particularly young, but there are a lot of newer and a little bit younger people coming coming yep. along and some good things going on, but this has yep. to be constantly watched. Well, did you want to say I'll let anything? you go then. Okay. Okay, yep. then, Frederick. That's Thanks all. very much Thank for you, that Carolyn. contribution. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. And keep up the good work. Okay, you too. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you, Hattie, if you had any... Uh, comment about uh, on what uh, Frederick Tobin said. Well, I, I, you know, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm familiar with what he's talking about, but I can just say that uh, this mutual friend of ours reproduced essentially what I told him, and uh, David Cole just pretended that it wasn't there. <laughs> just pretended. That it wasn't there. He ignored whole the whole yeah. solution to his quandary about what Abgang means, and uh, instead just pretended uh, that the issue with people saying the Corhair report was not authentic or something, which is really not the no, issue at all. No, it's not. But you know, and another word that's used, you said departure. Uh, that's probably what they're talking about. But another word that comes up is disappearance. You know, for what? Well, that's a word that can be used even for. Ausrotung, Rotung, right? Um, you know that's uh, extermination. It's it's also uh, can be uh, thought of as disappearance. You're going to disappear the people. Well, Ausrotung is removal. All right, it's rooting out literally. Yeah, removal. But the but the end result is that they will disappear uh, from from wherever they were. Not necessarily that they will be killed or die. Um, there's other ways to disappear. So, uh, well, let's go on to this next question here. Uh, well, I got the... something. This is. Uh, I got okay. something here. Uh, this okay. is 
is in line with what, uh, sort of in line with what uh, Frederick read, uh, you know, from uh, Winifred Wagner. Um, I was I was watching a, a video this afternoon. Actually, I was playing the video for some other people, and we were watching it together. It was some some ridiculous BBC production about uh, about the OSS report on Adolf Hitler, written by Walter Langer, right? Oh yeah, the uh, psychoanalyst. Yeah, I'm and, familiar uh, with that. You know, which means the Freudian psych psychiatrist, right? Mm -hmm. So this video, it was apparently it came out at the time of the invasion of Iraq because it had a couple of references to Saddam Hussein implying some kind of parallel thing uh, between Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. But uh, they, they, ha they had dramatizations of the people that Langer interviewed. And one of the dramatizations was of the physician, Dr. Edvard Bloch, who was the family physician for the Hitler family and had treated Adolf Hitler's mother for cancer. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, this, uh, in the in this so-called documentary, BBC, they had this uh, Edward Bloch, Dr. Bloch, uh, really insinuating that there was something pathological about uh, Hitler's relationship with his parents. But uh, this is this is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is even fairer than the BBC was. This is what Wikipedia says. In 1941 and 43, Bloch was interviewed by the Office of Strategic Services to get information about Hitler's childhood. He also published his memories about the encounter with the later Führer in the Collier's Week, in which he painted a remarkably positive picture of young Hitler saying that he was neither a ruffian, nor untidy, nor impolite. Quote, this is simply not true. As a youth, he was quiet, well-mannered, and, and neatly dressed. He waited patiently in the waiting room until it was turned. Then, like every 14- or 15-year-old boy, bowed as a sign of respect, and always thanked the doctor politely. Like many other youngsters of Lintz, he wore short lederhosen and a green woolen hat with a feather. He was tall and pale and looked older than his age. His eyes, which he inherited from his mother, were large, melancholic, and thoughtful. To a very large extent, this boy lived within himself. What dreams he dreamed, I do not know. Bloch also said that Hitler's most striking feature was his love for his mother. While Hitler was not a mother's boy, in the usual sense, I never witnessed a closer attachment. Their love had been mutual. Clara Hitler adored her son. She allowed him his own way whenever possible. For example, she admired his watercolor paintings and drawings and supported his artistic ambitions in opposition to his father, at what cost to herself, one may guess. However, Bloch expressly denies the claim that Hitler's love for his mother was pathological, which is was really stated in yeah. this BBC production. Yeah, I right. guess it's in Langer's stupid report also. Mm-hmm. Well, everything... Everything is pornographic is in Langer's report. Really terrible. Yeah. It, basically, you can turn anybody into a sick freak with the Freudian psychology, you know. Yeah. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. So what else were you going to so, say there? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it says that, uh, it says, Hitler was the saddest man I had ever seen when he was informed about his mother's imminent death. He remembered Clara Hitler, Hitler's mother, as a very pious and kind woman. According to Bloch, after Alois Hitler's death, the family's financial resources were scarce. He mentioned that Clara Hitler had lived frugally and not indulged in even the smallest extravagance. So there you go. This, even though he was a Jew, uh, he gave, for the most part, a very positive account. And mm -hmm. uh, these, these bastards at the BBC and at the Office of Strategic uh, Services twisted what he had to say. Well, that's right. That's how that whole thing went. You know, Hitler's, uh, of course, people, I don't want people to think that I've, you know, um, I'm trying to uh, use astrology here, uh, but uh, I just came upon this uh, astrological reading of, of Hitler, and it's his real uh, map, you know, birth map. And uh, it also shows uh, over and over again, it said that he is a, uh, a very congenial and well-mannered and diplomatic person. He's not a, you know, he's he's a, just would would be a well-behaved person, and he gets along with people. He likes people. He converses, and uh, he might. Uh, what am I trying to say? He uh, he's communicates. He he's a real communicator, and uh, he communicates well with people. And then he has this attraction, this appeal, that most everybody responded to that that venetian venusian uh attractiveness magnetism that is just a part of him and that does explain having uh how he how he rose the way he did and how he continued to draw people into his movement and he continues to appeal to people today in spite of what of, of the way they tried to demonize him so badly I mean, I think uh, that's as much a part of why of who why Hitler is who he is, and how how he's been uh, how the success that he had uh, than as anything. What do, what do you say about that? Well, I I think his success is mainly due to the fact that National Socialism is a good program. It's it's a good platform. You know, it, if if uh, if if a political party in the United States, if one of the two established parties would adopt at least the economic aspects of national socialism, this country, it would, I think it would get a lot of popular support. Um, the powerful, uh, influential people would oppose it, but popular support But it does take a, uh, a very appealing person to push it along. Uh, to uh, stand stand up for it and be committed to it. Because look at that party and similar parties, they say were in existence in Germany at that time, but only the NSDAP after Hitler got involved in it and renamed it and so on. And I don't know how much he was responsible for all the platform of that party, if a lot of it was already there and he just, you know, elaborated on it, or what? Do you? Well, it depends. What What are you calling a similar party? You know. Well, there was. There was. Well, Deutschland, not a folk 
apartheid, which was pan-Germanist, but didn't, they didn't have socialist aspects that the National Socialists had. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's, how, that's how... You know, people want to say that Hitler just took that from... It was already in existence for a long time, and he just took it up, and he didn't create it, and so on. Um, so what do you say to that? To that? Did, did, uh, did Hitler actually add the socialism to the nationalism, or was that done by someone else? at an earlier time in some way. I think it was a uh, it was a, a pretty obvious thing to do. You know, but it, the way Hitler describes his experience in Vienna, it appears that national socialism is a th synthesis of his own observation experience in Vienna from when he watched the uh, he, he supported the Pan-German party but then the he saw how successful the Christian Social Party was, right? Mm -hmm. And and he recognized that you had to do something for the workers in order to get their support. You know, yeah. it's, it's something that conservatives in the United States should learn. You, you cannot screw the workers by sending all the jobs overseas and then taking away their assistance and then expect them to vote for you. Well, you know, so this is the kind of stupidity yeah. that Hitler observed. So there, that was in Vienna, so early in his life, and then he goes to Munich and spends a, at least two years in Munich, um, studying and doing art and so on, and tons of reading. And then the war breaks out, and he goes to to war for four years. And all this time, this has been simmering in him, so that when he comes back from the war and realizes uh, the German people need a, a movement to save them, uh, then he uh, sees, he he, go, he, uh, he goes to that party meeting of that German workers' party, as they already believed a lot of German stuff for German workers, and then he, uh, he brings in his socialist aspect. They must have been somewhat socialist. Well, the, the socialists were, there was a lot of socialism going on. So, but I just don't yeah. know exactly. Um, I, I would like to have an answer to these people who try to, who want to say that, uh, that Hitler didn't really create this, um, because he always said that he did. He always said, "This is my, well, you know." Go ahead. There had been uh, at least at least three movements called National Socialist. Um, contemporary or previous to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. There was one that was started by a Protestant clergyman in Germany in the 1890s. There was a French National Socialist Party that was started, I think, in 1919. And there was a Czech National Socialist Party. All right. Um, Hitler may have gotten the name from one of those, most likely from, the, uh, from that Protestant clergyman, his organization. But, uh, you know, the economic aspect of National Socialism is exactly the same as the economic aspect of fascism. That's the point where they are the same, which is basically trying to solve the problem of the crisis of capitalism, right, where you have a surplus of labor and, and people not getting paid much and consequently not much demand for goods. This state has to get involved in the economy to fix that. Right, fascism and national socialism addressed 
this problem. So it was the obvious thing to do. But unfortunately, conservatives typically, for some reason, never want to do that. You know, but somebody has to come along and, and advocate that. Um, you know, it, it's it's got to be this. It's it's the only way that the, the our situation in the USA at this point is going to be saved. I think, otherwise, the country is just going to keep going downhill. Uh, let me uh, tell the listeners that uh, they we can go over. Uh, we don't have to stop at the top of the hour. We can continue on for a while. So uh, the guest call-in number is 323-642-1206. So if anybody wants to call in and has something to say, uh, you're very welcome to do so, and I promise you I won't uh, cut you off or chase you away. 323-642-1206 is the number to call. Yeah, another, okay. another aspect of it. Another mm-hmm. aspect of it is that uh, basically, to a considerable degree, Hitler was uh, expanding on Bismarck's agenda, you know, because Bismarck had started, uh, you know, a certain amount of socialism in Germany, and mm-hmm. he outlawed the uh, socialist parties at the same time, um, although the Kaiser did that later. But, um, you know, it, uh to a considerable degree, Hitler was a second in Bismarck. As a matter of fact, I have I think I have something about that here. I can look it up. Hitler was uh was a, interesting in that he was uh he had uh, what could be called radical ideas. He wanted to ha- uh, be revolutionary at the same time he was very uh traditional and uh didn't uh and I don't want to use the word conservative, but that might be the right word. But you see, he uh, he combined those uh, so that he was very responsible in everything that he was doing. Very respons- very very responsible to Germany. And and it was always Germany that was the reason for what he did. It wasn't an international. He didn't have international ideas. Even pan-European, uh, he didn't even uh, go that far until the uh, the late later forties when they started, uh, or not? They weren't the later forties, but in the forties um, when they started thinking a little bit larger because they had were in control of so much territory. Go ahead, Harry. You started to say something. Um, well, yeah, I did. No, I lost my mind. But uh, I have the, I have the thing here of uh, Hitler and Bismarck. You know, Johannes Stark, who was a Nobel laureate, chemist, Nobel Prize winning chemist, wrote this book called Adolf Hitler's Goals and Personality. And he compares Hitler with Bismarck. He said, uh, This is from 1930. Today, after Hitler's overwhelming electoral victory on September 15th, the Germans who until then judged Hitler wrongly will be inclined to have the wish to get to know his goals and personality more accurately than hitherto, and to heed the answers that can be given to the objections against Hitler that they might raise even today. 
Bismarck's highest goals were binding together the insular German states into a political unity in a German Reich, and after that, securing this Reich against its internal and external enemies. Hitler's highest goals are creation of a German national community in the consciousness of all German people, that they have a shit national character. Strengthening of the German people. Well, that broke up quite a bit. Repeat that last part, that they have a national character, was it? Hitler's highest goals are creation of a German national community in the consciousness of all German people that they have a shared national character. Strengthening of the German people. Yeah. Strengthening of the German people in body and soul and cultural and economic development of its assets and strengths, unimpeded by foreign peoples. That's very good. I really like that. I think that's right on. From everything I know and, and have learned about about Adolf Hitler, uh, that's a very good summation. And who was, who was it that made that? Some French person? Johannes Stark. Oh, Johannes German- Stark. German chemist who won a Nobel Prize. Okay, he was a, a chemist. socialist. Ah, no wonder he understood. And what? When was this? When was this said or written? Nineteen thirty. Excellent. Nineteen thirty. Yeah, excellent. I said that's very good. Um, you should, that. you should read that again. Uh, people, so everybody can listen very carefully to it. You are, you know, you are okay. kind of breaking up every every so often. There's a break in what in your word, but mostly it can all be made out. Sometimes it comes at a bad time. Okay, let me just uh, close the window there. Right. Okay. It says Hitler's highest goals are creation of a German national community in the consciousness of all German people that they have a shared national character, strengthening of the German people in body and soul, and cultural and economic development of its assets and strengths, unimpeded by foreign peoples. Now, this is uh, in 1930. Do you think that Hitler changed very much between 1930 and, say, 1942? Uh, no. You know, because this is what people will say. Well, then he, you know, he has started out there, but then he advanced into more uh, universalism or something. Um, I don't think so either, because in table talk, going up to uh, basically 1942 and then just a little bit of 43 and a tiny bit of 44, uh, it it's not evident that there is any change. He's still saying the same things, even though they talk about Germanization of uh, Poles and Czechs, and uh, they talk about uh, the Germanic, you know, uh, union and so on, and you know, they talk about Germanic peoples as as being they want to you make them a part of the whole thing. Uh, the whole great thing that they were reaching at that time. They do that, but basically it's still about they don't want any foreign people, you know, um, and uh, they don't want any foreign blood, and they and it's all about uh, doing all this 
for the German people. This is why I was saying in the beginning that I, I see Hitler now uh, more than I ever did before as a, as a great designer, the great artist or the grand designer who was designing this wonderful Reich that, uh, that he envisioned and that was going to be a wonderful and was a wonderful living space for Germans. And he did want to expand it because it needed, Germans needed more, more space and certain natural resources and things that they didn't have. But um, waging war was not the way he wanted to go about it. But this was, this was what he was creating. It was for the German people. And, and he, he encouraged, uh, he, in fact, I found uh, just, uh, where was that? Uh, it was very late in time that he said that uh, 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 National Socialism was not for export. In fact, he would just as soon, you know, people could come up with their own version of that. And uh, he wasn't really interested in helping other nations develop their own National Socialism because uh, then they would be as strong as Germany was. He thought it made Germany a very well, strong country. Yeah, he, he wasn't really consistent about that. You know, they they did help uh, Franco in Spain, you know, to keep Spain from going communist. And mm -hmm. uh, just before the war broke out, um, they were about to have Oswald Mosley broadcast to Britain and Germany. And, but that plan had to be scrapped when the war started. Yeah. Well, all that makes There's sense, almost, you know. Hitler, Hitler was always making exceptions. For whatever principle well, he laid down. Yes, you're right about that. But you know, the, the, if people who are on the same. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that he would uh, not want uh, to, to, these other groups to succeed. You know, like Mosley and and uh, the Span Spaniards and so on. He would, and he did, and he, he was very fond of the of Italy uh, and and Mussolini. So it's not that uh, it was like he, you know, wanted to keep it all for himself. But he said, you know, we're not trying to get other people to do that. And, and also we're not there to uh, help them, you know, if they can do it, if they do it themselves, fine. But our job is to uh, continue to uh, help Germany. That's the way I see it. Yeah, well, you know, the original reason for that uh, statement, National Socialism is not for export, was to try to avoid diplomatic troubles from other countries that thought he might be trying to start mm -hmm. a revolution in their country. He didn't, didn't want to have a lot of friction with yeah, other countries sense. over this. He didn't, you know, because yeah, the communists were trying to spread communism, and basically yeah. he was trying to say, look, we're not doing that, you know. And particularly he was sensitive about the United States. He didn't want anything that would... Uh, give the United States any reason to think that Germans in in their German citizens there were were not loyal and were trying to uh, you know uh, um, follow the Ger Germany in Europe or were trying to do anything that was uh, to, to change things. He didn't want them to have that idea, right? I'd like to learn more about the, that the German-American boon. I, I did a little bit of research on that a few years ago, and uh, w what I found out is that uh, this uh, the leader of it was uh, he was accused of some things. 
Um, but the the main accuser was this uh, Congressman Dick Stein. I, I think he turned out to be a communist agent or something later on. Mm. Yeah. But uh, there's some con there's some unproven accusations there. I think a lot a lot of it had to do with uh, allegations about uh, some secret uh, deal or something that there were, it was being insinuated that uh, that the German American Bund had uh, an explicit relationship with Hitler that may not have actually been there. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing we haven't gotten to and and I would like to make some comments on it because I did put it in the announcement and that is um, what Hitler speculating on what Hitler would have to say if he uh, if he showed up in the world today and I tried to come up with some things but I I, I don't you know it's the kind of thing you really can't uh, can't know at all so I'm not too uh, thrilled with what I came up with but I think we should make a stab at it uh, before we um, before we end this show. So what would he have to say if he were here now? Well, I think he would, if if he took it in, took it seriously, you know, if he if he would even answer such a question, um, he would organize. That's what he would say. You need to organize, and you know his. As I've already pointed out, his attractive personality made it possible for him to do so and to be so successful in organizing people back then where uh, others uh, don't don't have those particular gifts maybe that, that are available and so many um, of our leaders uh, lack charisma or they're not uh, morally strong enough, they have some moral weaknesses. And or they're tricked or they're assassinated by ne'er do wells because there's so much. There's probably more infiltration by the enemy today than ever was at that time. It certainly was easier to organize in his day and age in Germany uh, than than it is uh, anywhere in Europe or in the United States or any other, um, you know, in the British Commonwealth countries today what what do you say do you have any comment on that well you know i don't know As for us here our, our big problem is this uh winner take all electoral system with which we're saddled you know uh you can't you can't start a new political party in this country and, and really hope to have any success at all you know even if it's something that everybody likes because people won't vote for a party that's not one of the two major parties. Well, but even you know, even well, in Europe, Hatting, uh, they have they don't have winner take all. But even there, they run into serious problems with uh, um, parties that aren't in the mainstream. And uh, there's a lot of ways well, they that just they had have alternative to for Germany. Parties. You know, they just had alternative for Germany in the last election. I think they got around five percent of the vote. You know, yeah, well, so when, is, uh, when is there going to be another election that we can see how they do? Uh, I They don't seem to be having any electioning, electioneering going on. Boy, it's so disgusting that I was, you know, I noticed that Hillary Clinton was already in Iowa or something doing, you know, getting her campaign going. 
And here it is. I thought, well, when is this election? Let's see. It's uh, a year and uh, six months or something like that from now. Uh, so uh, we used, they used to, back in the old days, they used to start out, you know, uh, well into the very year of the election. And now they start earlier and earlier, and you have to have this stuff going on, this electioneering and this campaigning and these horrible people that are running for office in your face, you know, for a longer and longer period of time. It's just, it's really sick. It's so ridiculous. And it, it's a, uh, it's, it's miserable, I think, for the public. Well, you know, what's really miserable is having such lousy choices. Well, that's right. They're going to put up Hillary Clinton on the Democrat side, the woman who said, we came, we saw, he died. <laughs> really? This woman's going to run president? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, the whole, the yeah. Well, so you're saying that if Hitler would say uh, you need to organize, you can't get anywhere. Uh, well, it's not it's not as far as the parties. We can't get any parties going. But they've got parties in Europe, and we have to remember yeah. not just the United States, but what's going on in Europe. Um, but they still have uh, they still can't overcome the mainstream, the power of the mainstream. And the power of the press. Uh, well, and, one of the, the things Hitler says, one of the things that Hitler says, is that you should should try to focus on just one enemy. Because if you have too many enemies, the public starts to think that if with so many enemies, the cause might not be a good cause. Because if you just have one enemy then that's believable that there's just, like, one evildoer out there. But if you have a bunch of enemies, it, it looks maybe the cause itself is is not right. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that, that uh, Rockwell did that Hitler would have agreed with was to try to put aside the conflict with blacks in the United States. To me, that that makes sense in terms of, you know, Adolf Hitler's general approach to things. It was Try blacks to put aside have gotten the so blacks have gotten so uh, different. You know, I, I don't I want to say an insulting word, but they've gotten so uh, aggressive and kind of uh, horrible. You know, that it's hard to think that. In fact, it's getting worse between. Uh, pro-whites and blacks because the blacks yeah, are becoming but you see, so this is, this is part of the Jewish propaganda the, the Jews started yeah. this stuff after the Leo Frank trial uh, because, because as revenge they started agitating the blacks against white people and they never really stopped you know they, they're this is what they're doing by you know they made the, they made that George Zimmerman case into a, a, a white man murdering a a, a poor innocent thirteen uh, year old you know colored boy and and the police trying to cover it up and so you know they have this whole uh, conspiracy thing that they're promoting or the evil white racists are doing this stuff this is stuff that they've been doing for decades and and the, the Jews started this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they start everything. Well, what about, what do you think Hitler would suggest for Germany? I mean, I thought that he would say that since Germany doesn't have any real soldiers anymore, he, you know, he can't hardly relate to it because they don't have a fighting force, really, for themselves. And, and what they have, they're not fighting for their own territory and national interests. And that's why uh, it has no strength and that the problems now are all are in Ger- Germany is seen all in a financial way, not in a racial way. So he would say you have to get back to the racial message. Of course, he would know better than than all of this silly stuff that I'm saying. And he would know what we you know what is not going to work anyway, no matter what what it might you know how it might fit into what he said back then. But without a racial message, anyway, you can't make any progress uh, against the Jews as long as you're not going to have the racial, as long as you're not going to be able to look at things in a racial way. So that that right there, as long as we're deracinated, we can't yeah, make any progress. Deracinated doesn't really mean... Deracinated. That does, deracinated means uh, uprooted, basically. Well, but but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, foreign policy, I I think, you know, I I don't know. It seems uh, very presumptuous to say what Adolf Hitler would say, but I know what makes what makes sense to me in terms of what he says in his third book to Mein Kampf that he never finished. In, in that book of Mein Kampf, he says that the, the United States, uh, well, basically, let me start again. He says that the United Kingdom, Britain, should ally with Germany because if Britain does not ally with Germany, the United States will end up dominating the world. And the United States will be much worse as dominant world power than, than the British Empire. That's what he says in the unfinished third book to Mein Kampf. Now, if I take that line of thought about these two powers uh, sticking together to keep the United States from dominating the world, then I have to think that uh, possibly Adolf Hitler would advise the Germans to avoid conflict with Russia, try to get along with Russia. Because if, if Russia goes down, then the USA, instead of having to deal with, uh, you know, it, it just puts the USA in a stronger position. Yeah. You know, so and that's, he, what, that's what has to be avoided. Well, he was saying then that Germany and Britain should unite against the United States, against the power, right, yeah. in that third book. And, not and really against the United States, but no, uh, not know. against, but as as a, as a force um, to to keep the keep the that keep the United States from taking over everything. Yes. Well, but the British want to be in league with the United States. They always have. It seems like from the time, certainly from any time that Hitler was around, the British wanted to be wanted the U.S. as partners with them. Uh, yeah, it's because against the British debt was owned by the New York City banks. Yeah. Um, 
So Hitler would be uh, encouraged. What What do you think Hitler would say about a German-Russian uh, ag agreement? You know, some kind of working relationship. Do you think that, uh, from his point of view, that as we know it, that he today would see that, uh, in spite of the fact of the great uh, celebration there that's coming up there and. May 9th of their great victory over uh, over uh, his government and his Reich. Well, you know, I think that's it's really kind of beside the point. If you just look at practical considerations, the practical consideration is that uh, that if Russia is weakened, that just makes the United States relatively stronger compared to the rest of the world. So it's just not in Germany's interest to weaken Putin or Russia. You know, and I don't, I, I really am hesitant to say this is what Hitler would say. I'm not going to say that, but uh, I'm, it's logical, and it's the kind of logic that I see in Hitler's third book. Now, are you speaking of Hitler's third book, is that... Hit, what's called Hitler's second book? Secret book. Is, yeah, it's usually Hitler's called his second book. book, but that's wrong. Yeah. It was his third well, book. Well, see, I, I do it that way, and so I get confused when you call it his third book. Because I see Mein Kampf as one book, and then this uh, this uh, second book, which never got a name, unfortunately, so it's called the second book. Um, no, it's not. And you say it's, it's, uh, it was never completed. Yeah, it wasn't completed. Yeah. Well, probably he set it aside and that was the end of that. He didn't want it to be published either. <clears throat> but it well, is some his. of the things that he said in there came out in speeches anyway. Yeah, but that is his book. He did write that book. Yeah, it seems so. Yeah, I think so. Um, and... Uh, I'll just ask your opinion while you're here because we're going to be doing this final show on Thursday. Um, what 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 is your opinion on the authenticity of table talk? Well, I, I haven't I haven't seen any indication that it's not, not authentic. Um, you know, I did read that there was something wrong with. Uh, with Francois, uh, what's his name's uh, translation, but Genoux. maybe there isn't. I, no, yeah, Francois you see, because uh, that's a different issue. His whatever his translation was, I don't. But uh, the uh, the Heim notes are now. I found out where they were published on the uh, on the internet, and they were put up by GermanVictims.com, that person that uh, runs that site. And uh, they're there, and I've been going through them, uh, went through them a lot in the last uh, week or last four or five days because I'm preparing uh, and, I, and I'm comparing the um, the the uh, English translation by those two Brit British guys uh, with the with with the Heim original, and I mean everything just falls into place perfectly. There's nothing. Uh, there's no. There's nothing that's missing or out of place there. So I don't know where all that comes from. Even even all that business about the 
about the um, what he says about Christianity. Well, I'll I'll, I'll save this for that program, but uh, you know, there's uh, I any you could go through it if you went through it. You could see if if there was any mistranslations in the in what he says about Christianity. Doesn't seem to be. It all seems to be translated. Uh, that's, uh, that's main adequately. That's the main accusation is that uh, Francois Genoux made Hitler appear to be more hostile to Christianity than he was. But in, I just checked one section, and it didn't seem to be the case. No, that's, but, a, uh, see, that's phony. That's fake. And that's put out by, I guess, uh, Christian people with interests of Christianity. I, I'm convinced that uh, Hitler was hostile to Christianity, and, and he was uh, very much hostile uh, to the churches because they weren't wouldn't go along with his program uh, the way he wanted them to his national socialist program for for Germany so uh, or his, mostly his anti-Jew you know his his uh, Jewish program for Germany they wouldn't go along with so uh, so he he was against two things the church and uh, then he had problems with the Christianity Christian dogma yeah well, and the whole yeah thing. well he, you know Hitler didn't Hitler really didn't want he uh, he really didn't want to deal with that issue of he didn't want to have conflict with the church the no, way he puts right. it in Mein Kampf is the way he puts it in Mein Kampf is if it's if it's possible to uh, arrange for the survival and uh, preservation of the nation uh, without attacking the church, then you shouldn't attack the church. And that goes together with the principle that you don't want to have too many enemies that you're trying to uh, take on. You know, you try not to have more than one enemy, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. because it's harder to get the people on your side if you do that. Right, and so... Uh he was saying that then, and uh, but he didn't ever go. He didn't ever openly attack the church, and he didn't even openly attack members of the church. Although I think it was known that there was strong conflict between some of these bishops uh, and uh, and the government, but he did say in table in his table talk that. Uh, things like uh, it wasn't the time and he wasn't going to take this on, you know, because he had this big war going on and so on. Just what you said, you know, you don't want to have too many too many uh, battles going on. But when the war was over, he was saying a lot of things he was going to do when the war was over. When the war was over, he was going to uh, take on those churchmen and they would they would know it. He was he was really had it in yeah, for them. Well, you know, the, I can just. I can just think of two religious conflicts that he had. One was with this uh, Pastor Niemuller, yeah. who uh, I, I guess he formed a, a, a splitter of the Lutheran church where he kept ordaining Jews as priests or something. You know, they, 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 they tried to establish that uh, ethnic Jews were not going to be priests. and uh, But Niemuller wanted to uh, retain that. And he got locked up, even though he, he, on a religious basis, he was he would be considered an anti-Semite <laughs> because he had nasty things to say about the re Jewish religion. Niemuller did. 
Yeah, yeah, but I thought that was up to he. That was earlier, and then eventually he started um, joining the complaints about the way the Jews were being treated. And then he, whatever he well, was after doing, the I don't war, know. It was an advantage to jump on that bandwagon, but uh, you know he had written. Uh, Rassinier points this out that Mueller had taken these positions where he was extremely critical. He was a nationalist and he was uh, a religious anti-Semite, you could say, but not a racial anti-Semite. Right? Well, he was. But the other conflict. Yeah. The other big conflict that Hitler had was uh, with the youth. Euthanasia program because uh, Galen. yeah Galen made this uh, sermon. Galen found out about the euthanasia program yeah. and he made this sermon implying wounded uh, soldiers from the Eastern Front might be euthanized, and then the British uh, Air Force started dropping leaflets, reproducing quotes from Galen's sermon to try to demoralize people. Wow, well, I never and, heard that. I didn't know that yeah. Galen was saying that. I thought he was just complaining about the euthanasia program for the uh, the mentally ill, the, the seriously mentally ill and so on. I didn't know that he well, was implying that the soldiers would, if they are very badly wounded, is that what he was saying? They were going to be... <clears throat> Where uh, this is my recollection... Anyway? This is my recollection from reading Robert Proctor's book, Racial Hygiene, that uh, Galen well, had said that. Well, that might not be. That, I don't know. I'd like to find out about that for sure. Um, I'll have to try to remember to look that up. Robert Proctor, he's the guy that wrote that book on uh, the, uh, Hitler's uh, Third Reich Health Programs. Impolic, he wrote also right? the Nazi war against cancer. Yeah. Yeah, he's not a national socialist. No, of course not. But no, I, I think there's a lot of information in the book anyway. Yeah, maybe so, but you might, might, might not be so sure about that particular one. I never heard that. You'd think they'd play that up more if that were the case. Um well, we're. Uh, well, it wasn't true that it wasn't true that any German soldiers got euthanized. But the the fear no. that some German soldiers might be euthanized was very demoralizing. I I remember Ernst Zittel, I was talking with him once about this. He said there was a big demonstration by German women that they had that they had to stop this euthanasia program. And they stopped the they stopped the uh, program because of that, but the Cardinal Galen also gave a sermon against it. Yes, he did. But the, the key to the key to the, the, key to the uh, objection to the program was the idea that uh, wounded soldiers might be euthanized. Well, I think the objection was that uh, as a Christian, it was an unchristian thing to do to euthanize anybody for any reason. That's what I thought, and he got the church people all worked up. And he made that speech. He, I mean, he gave a sermon without any warning uh, in the church one. I uh, might have been on Palm Sunday or something like that when there were a whole lot of people attending. And, uh, boy, that made Hitler so mad. And uh, 
but he did have to back down on that because of because of Galen and the, what the information he was coming out with. So uh, and that was a useful program. Well, we're not going to get into that tonight. I always say I'm going to do a program on on uh, both uh, euthanasia and the other one that's perfectly all right. What is that other one? I always forget that that one. They both start with an E, don't they? The other program for improving the race. Eugenics. Eugenics, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but well, euthanasia, the euthanasia had nothing to do with improving the race. Euthanasia no, was... No, no. I, I didn't mean who were that it did. We're not going to reproduce. Uh, the uh, youth. I'm just saying that there was two programs: uh, eugenics, which was which was a positive, good program, and euthanasia, which I think was uh, was an important program too. But it was uh, seen as entirely negative, and uh, people okay. couldn't uh, handle it. Yeah. Okay, I have the text, the translated text of Galen's sermon here. He said, "This is a quote: If all unproductive people." may thus be violently eliminated, then woe betide our brave soldiers who return home wounded, maimed, or sick. Oh. So there you go. That was his. He made that. He made that jump. Uh, nobody else did. See, that was why Hitler was so against him. He was doing nasty things like that. Uh, sneaky. Yeah. Sneaky things like that. Well, that's very good. I'm glad you came up with that. And you know when he says unproductive people, these were not unproductive people. These were people that needed 24-hour care, and uh, well, they were unproductive, but they were more than that, you know. And they were completely, even not even hardly aware of of themselves and their surroundings, and they were extremely uh, had extreme uh, mental illness, which was beyond just what we might think of as mental illness. They were, you know, insane, and uh, had to be tied down on beds of straw and so on and naked and uh, because they soiled themselves all the time. These are people who you'd think it would be a mercy to put them out of their misery. Now, maybe they weren't all like that. Some of them were extremely uh, deformed or, you know, born without limbs and all kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, with, and they were all at least retarded pretty, pretty badly, the ones who were... Um, who were the born uh, so so messed up? So I think that's a proper way to behave if you're to do things. If you're if your whole society, if your society um, agrees with it, I guess uh, the most it wasn't that well known, and so people were shocked, and and uh, it was being kind of done quietly. I think it it can be defended. And this made it's a lot of a lot of things about it are said that aren't true about people they were they were putting they were euthanizing. Um, well, the main lie that I encounter about it is uh, an exaggeration of the numbers euthanized. Um, the official number is something like seventy-one thousand. Uh, but if you if you look at uh, the figures that people like to use, they like to claim two hundred thousand or something like that, right? Yeah, but the seventy-one thousand figure, the seventy-one thousand figure is consistent with projection 
that the number they would have to euthanize would be like one in 1,000 of the German population. That That's about 71,000. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, they always have to exaggerate the numbers in order to make something seem so much worse than what it was. There, there we get back to the honesty thing that you started out with, uh, why it's important to, to be honest and why, uh, since they're not honest, since those who are who are undermining uh, what we think is good are not honest, well, maybe we should play the same game they do. And uh, you uh, are very much against that. And um, Hitler... Well, you see, the thing is, we don't... We, we, you know, as uh, national socialists or white nationalists or whatever kind of uh, dissident we are, we don't have the control of you know, mass media that makes us possible to make a lie stick, you know, or, or to cover anything up. It, mm-hmm. If we lie, it, it's, it, it can be very easily torn apart. All we do is hurt ourselves if we lie, you know. Um, okay, so when you're in a weak position, option. when you're in a weak position, it's even more important to make sure you're always being truthful. I think that's right. Yeah, and you know, we can choose not to discuss some things that aren't helpful. That's always an option because you're not going to damage your credibility by just not discussing something. If you mm-hmm. say something that turns out not to be true, you've damaged your credibility. And, you know, when you don't have a big propaganda machine for you know, that says the same stuff every day 10,000 times, your your credibility counts a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I think that's true. And uh, it's so much easier to stick with the truth. And then you always know where you are and when you're, when you're dealing with other people who are trying to pass lies on you or claim that you've been lying or that you don't, don't know something. You're, it's, it's, it's so much easier to refute them and to uh, reinforce what you've been saying. It's just terrible when you get into lies. Uh, you don't know what, where you'll end up. Well, then um, as a final question here to uh, say something about having... This is uh, Hitler's 126th uh, birthday anniversary, and a lot of people continue. There's a lot of big following and a lot of uh, interest in Adolf Hitler and a lot of love for Adolf Hitler. Do you? What would you say about the, the prospects for this continuing on into the future and even on into the somewhat distant future, like, you know, 25 years from now, Will there still be those who are uh, and and not only interested in in Adolf Hitler but knowledgeable enough about Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich to uphold it, to defend it, and to tell the truth about it? I mean, do you think it can wear out in time and uh, disappear? Well, oh, I can tell you that. I can tell you that the, the Muslim world doesn't believe the the old propaganda anymore. Um, you know. Well, we don't want to depend that, on the Muslims. Well, Unless no, I but, guess uh, they're white Muslims. Know, <laughs> there are white. They Muslims come into too. Europe also, and uh, they bring those opinions with them. You mm-hmm. know, 
Um, well, but uh, you know, enough time has gone by that uh, it becomes more and more absurd to maintain propaganda and lies about this man and to pretend that he's a, a demon. You know, it, 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 it's hard to imagine it. You know, I run into so many people that really are somewhat open to hearing the truth about Adolf Hitler. You just you just have to say it in the right way. You just have to not come across as a freak. You know, mm-hmm. you have to come across in a reasonable way and have real information. You know, and uh, and it's it's completely feasible. The people that you can't reach are the people who are dishonest and are used to using Hitler, uh, uh, bad Hitler comparisons themselves. Those people, for them, it's no, there's no use in finding out that Hitler really wasn't the devil incarnate because they, they rely on that too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But and, you honestly, know, but there's also the issue of World War II. I mean, has there ever been – do you think we're still being lied to about lots of wars back in history? I mean, how long will World War II – require uh, that we have, uh, say, uh, Hitler's as the uh, bad guy in Germany, as the, as the cause of everything, and, uh, the, uh, and, and then even the Holocaust. How long will this be necessary for this war? You know, for the history of this war. I don't war? think that's going away anytime soon. You know, around the time when... Uh, uh, when Netanyahu was coming to the United States to speak to the Congress, and uh, they were trying to head off Obama for negotiating the Iranians, all of a sudden I started hearing Adolf Hitler's name mentioned on the radio, like on a daily basis. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh normally never talks about Adolf Hitler. Normally never mentions, but it's like all of a sudden it's like, on a daily basis, that name Adolf Hitler shows up on Rush Limbaugh's show. Mm-hmm. So, it, this is what they do. They're still doing that. They're still doing that. When they don't want you to negotiate with somebody, you know, in other words, you cannot, you cannot talk to the Iranians, you cannot negotiate with the Iranians, you cannot make a deal with the Iranians. You're a fool if you do anything but try to destroy the Iranians because they are Adolf Hitler. And if you make the mistake of trying to negotiate with the new Adolf Hitler, then you're the new Neville Chamberlain, which is like saying that you you have no manhood, right? Yeah, but you know, how many people still fall for that? I can't imagine. I I don't know. I'm not sure how effective that propaganda is anymore. There's still they're still at it, still using that, still beating that drum. But you know, uh, I I saw that the, uh, I think it's a majority, a majority of Americans are in favor of negotiating with Iran. So I think it's just a, a few freaks, maybe that still find this convinced. Maybe religious fundamentalists still find those references convincing. Well, yeah, I wouldn't think too many people did. Here, uh, I've got some, uh, here, I've just checked my email, and here's some comments for you. Oh, here's somebody talking about how you pronounce uh, Goebbels. They say that you don't, that you're pronouncing it Goebbels, 
and that's not right. But, well, you know, it is right. Uh, people don't know how to pronounce it. He says, it's not Goebbels or Goebbels, but like the English pronunciation, Goebbels. Jeez. Bullshit. No, it's not. I don't know if he's saying it should be Goebbels or he's saying that none of these are any good, but he doesn't seem to know how to pronounce it. You know, people think that this Goebbels is right. Uh, a lot of people use that, but it is uh, it's Goebbels, right? Goebbels? Well, that, it's an O with an umlaut over it, which is the same as O-E. Mm-hmm. It's the same sound as in Schön. I mean, nobody right. says Schön, so... Right. Well, people do. <laughs> and I can't, I, I know what it's supposed to be, but sometimes I don't do it right either. I heard myself in a show from, uh, some shows from, oh, back in uh, three or four years ago. And I was saying, uh, what was I saying? Goebbels, thinking that that was good enough. You know, that was pretty good, Goebbels. <laughs> but I learned from you that it is uh, Goebbels. Uh, so, um, and it's easier to, if you if you're just speaking like in, in English to just say Goebbels, Goebbels, Goebbels. Um, so to this writer, that is the correct pronunciation. So I think we've covered a lot, and I don't know what else there is to cover. Do you have any final words you'd like to say, Hattie? No, I'm I'm trying to get a computer translation of Goebbels. Oh, well, so that we can hear it. Well, let me say that, uh, oh, and I want yeah, to know. I'm not going to be able to do it. No, what is it? I think you've got it right. You say it, you say it right. Say it, say it again real. You yeah, know, I just believe like so. Say it, say it again like you were a computer translator saying it. Goebbels, believe. Goebbels. <laughs> See, I, yeah. have a, I have Goebbels. a military, Goebbels. I have a U.S. Army phrase book. From the Second World War, mm -hmm. and it ha it tells people to pronounce that umlaut o as er like that, but I don't think they told people that because it was correct. I think they told them that because it was easier than trying to get them to do it the right way. Yeah, I think so because uh, and then people, you know, there is a little bit. Gibbles, gibbles. Sometimes it can you can hear kind of an R sound, but it's not like a real R. And so if you're gonna, then people then revert to saying gerbils, and just like it's like that, you know. And then it's that's really bad. But we we can't make those umlaut sounds unless you practice it a lot and and can speak a lot of a lot more German than that, so that you get into the whole German way of speaking. Uh, it's very difficult to suddenly, when you're speaking English, I find, to just switch to saying one of those names properly. But anyway, that's another issue. Well, what is the, what is the title, uh, Hatting, of that uh, song that I played at the beginning, the Deutschland? I don't have it here, the title, and I want to say what it is. I think the, it's uh, Deutsch, Deutschland, Land der Treue, Germany, Land of Loyalty. Say it one more time, because this is this is a song. I'm, I'm going to lead out with this song also. So we're saying good night for now. If I recall correctly, the title is uh, Deutschland, du Land der Treue. Yeah, that was it. Okay, I didn't know it was Land was repeated again. Deutschland, du Land der Treue. That is uh, 
this very nice song that you uh, turned me on to. And we're going to end the show with this. And this has been the Heretics Hour on April 20th, 2015. And we have been uh, celebrating, uh, if you can call it that, Adolf Hitler's birthday on this show. And want to thank Frederick Tobin for making his call in and adding that very wonderful quote that he gave us. And also thank Ray Goodwin for calling in to give me a hand early in the show. Appreciate that very much, both of those gentlemen. I appreciate you, Hatting, for coming on. And I think we had some interesting things to say. So uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, maybe the editing will turn it into a good show. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much work. I don't have too much work. I'm not going to edit that much. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. Be back. We'll do this again right. next year. Bye-bye.